Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Pigs ate everything. Kitchen scraps, bitter lettuce from the garden, the stale and sticky contents of lunch boxes kids brought home from school, toenail clippings, hairballs pulled up from the drain. After the pigs were done, there weren't even any teeth left over, not even any metal from cavities filled long ago. They lived in a pen out back. There were six of them. They never fought. They seemed to smile when you approached, but you had to be quick. If you brought a bucket of slop for them and poured it out too slowly without moving your hand away, you never knew what could happen. Louisa was missing a finger, not an important one. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Johanna Stoberak, author of Pigs. In this somewhat disturbing but crisply written fable, Stoberak alludes to a world of unwanted immigrants and overpollution with nowhere to store the excessive amounts of garbage generated by 21st century society. The parentless children in her story are forced to grapple with the extremely wasteful behavior of the island's adults, who are too involved with sating themselves to notice that the children are starving for both food and love. The greedy adults refuse to notice that their unwanted garbage is not being disposed of until it's too late. Hi, Johanna. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So let's dive right in. What triggered you to write this book? You know, that's a really good question. And I think that the answer is that there is no single trigger for it. Um, one One of the Um, things that motivated me to write it um, was thinking about my own children and thinking about the kind of world that I would like for them to live in and the kind of world that unfortunately does not exist for them. Another thing that is a little bit crazy is that I live in the county and there is no curbside recycling. And so just watching the mountains and mountains of recyclable materials build up on our back porch, um, was a big motivation for thinking about the way the kinds of uh, trash that we create and the systems that we have in place that uh, don't work very well for disposing of it. And then a third thing that um, kind of set the story in motion was that we got this beautiful flock of chickens that just ate everything. And they seemed so perfect to me. And just thinking about like, what would it be like if there were actually some animals in the world that ate everything that we that we created? So those were three things that I was thinking about when I started writing the book. That's hysterical. Yeah. But why did you choose pigs as the animal that eat everything that eats everything as opposed to goats? Because goats really do eat a whole lot of everything. You know, that's funny. I was thinking about that recently because I was taking a walk and I saw um, that my town had um, gotten a herd of goats to eat noxious weeds at a park near my house. So I was thinking, yeah, those goats, they really do eat everything. Um, But I think that the idea for pigs um, came 
from thinking about, well, there was one thing. So I watched um, this really crazy episode of Criminal Minds the night before I started writing. And in that episode, it was a serial killer episode and the serial, this particular serial killer um, disposed of his victims by feeding them to a herd of pigs. And I watched that the night before and I woke up in the morning and I just had this sentence rattling around in my head, the pigs ate everything. Uh, and I started writing from there. But the more that I thought about pigs and the kind of space that they occupy in our uh, collective imaginations, the more it seemed just perfect, um, that they're kind of insatiable animals, um, that they're um, used as a sort of metaphor for shaming people and for talking about um, ways in which we take up too much of the world. And I really like the idea of turning that around and having that kind of insatiable appetite be positive and having um, the people in the story exhibit more of the behavior that we would normally um, kind of associate with pigs. Hmm. You know, some of us wake up the next morning after watching Criminal Minds in a blur because we haven't slept. We're so (laughs) frightened. And you wake up the next day and start a novel. How interesting. (laughs) Have you written other allegories, fairy tales, or dystopian stories, or is this your first? Well, this is my first, but I think that some of the writing that I've been doing in recent years has kind of brought me here. I um, was doing a series of stories that were sort of rewritings of fairy tales, and they were just kind of for my own pleasure. I didn't really even try to place them anywhere. Um, But the more I sort of started thinking about that kind of magical writing, the more it became sort of exciting for me to think about writing an entire book like that. Um, And I've always been an avid reader of fairy tales. So I had that kind of um, sort of simple, but really charged aesthetic already kind of as a part of me. Um, So it didn't feel like that big of a step to take to move into this kind of very, um, oddly imagined world. Hmm. Is there any significance in the number of children you have placed on the island? You know, there really isn't. But um, so when I started writing, I started writing that first sentence of the novel, the pigs ate everything. And then the novel just kind of moved from there. And the entire first chapter sort of, um, was a chapter of discovery for me, sort of discovering the rules of the world, discovering who populated the world. And those four children just kind of announced themselves. And it was really important to me that um, there be an oldest, which is Mimi, and that there be a youngest, which is Natasha. And then I really wanted the two in the middle, Andrew and Louisa, Louisa's the one that we spend the most time with, to um, be a kind of matched couple that the other two can kind of wish that they were a part of um, that um, friendship that's built out of closeness of age and closeness of experience. Mm -hmm. What, what are we supposed to think about? What do you want your reader to think about where these children came from? Um, I want them. So I want them to think about the ways in which the children have these kind of um, scattered memories of a time before and that they're, a time before that's kind of built on a sense of 
adult disappointment in the world. So Andrew, when he kind of has this glimmer of where he might have been before he was on the island, um, part of that is his mother crying, right? His mother kind of making a decision about whether or not to keep an an unplanned pregnancy. Um, And just that feeling of there's something going on in the world that I don't quite understand. And I know it's really important. And I wish that I could do whatever I could do to make it better for these adults in my life. But I just don't know enough to be able to help. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't want readers to have like a particular biography for each child. But I do want them to think about the children as having these kind of tenuous connections to um, loving adult families that are no longer in place. Yeah. What do you want your readers to think about how everyone got to the island? I want them to think about the people that we throw away. And I want them to think about the people that we throw away in terms of the way they stand in opposition to the people that we supposedly cherish and how when we cherish people, and that makes it possible for us to cast others away, that we're creating this kind of large and disenfranchised population of people in the world that grows larger every day. Yeah, the, the adults are so privileged, but so weird. Are, are they also to be seen as having been thrown away? You know, I don't think of them as being thrown away at all. And I think of the weirdness of them as that they don't question at all the amount of just stuff that they accumulate. And so one of the things that they like, I just loved writing about was their kind of um, like strange sense of fashion and their strange sense both um, of what is fashionable and what they wear and what is fashionable in like the vacations that they go on or the kinds of drinks that they drink. Um, And just that kind of sense of like, we are never satisfied with anything that we have. There's always something out there that's better or that's changing. Um, And at one point they say like, just, you know, be patient because everything is going to end up on the Island eventually. And they see that as a positive, right? They'll always be able to have access to the new fashion lines. They'll always be able to have access to um, a new set of disenfranchised people to take advantage of. Did, did you consider them to be evil? Because I did. Yeah, absolutely. And in many ways, you know, they're over the top evil, but there's also something really odd about them in that they're almost innocent in the kind of evilness that they exhibit, like it just never occurs to them that there is a problem with the way that they're behaving. That's true. It's just unconscious meanness. Yeah. And also like, you know, a kind of love for one another, Um, certainly um, a, a love of the life that they have and a desire to continue that life no matter what the cost. You said you don't want the children to be separated or to have a separate story, but each one has something interesting about them. Can you go through the four of them? Let's start with the youngest, with Mimi. Sure. So um, Natasha is the youngest. She's a toddler. Yeah. So Mimi is the oldest. Natasha is the youngest. And um, she is um, like a pre-vocal, pre-verbal toddler. She... um, 
has one line that she says early on in the novel, and then the rest of the kids spend the rest of the of the novel waiting for her to talk. And when she does start talking, she just kind of channels the adults, and everything that she says um, is based on what she wants. And in some ways, there's a kind of link between, you know, like that sense of consumption that, you know, very little children have and the sense of consumption that the adults on the island have. Um, and part of what I think Natasha is doing is just showing this kind of like, um, like un, uh, unmediated desire to take in the world um, that if not mediated by a kind of maturity becomes highly problematic. So that's Natasha, and she's some somebody who um, Mimi, who's the oldest, um, who's about fifteen or sixteen, um, and she really sees herself in a kind of mothering role to Natasha. And um, I kind of chose their names, like Natasha is, you know, the heroine of War and Peace, and Mimi is the heroine of La Boheme, and I just kind of wanted to have these sort of like glamorous and operatic names. Um, for these children living in these very harsh conditions, just as a kind of like ironic mode to operate within. Um, but Mimi is, um, she's the oldest, she's kind of bossy. Um, she cares very deeply about fashion and it's very upsetting for her that she, um, you know, has to live her life in rags with the rest of the children. She worries quite a bit that perhaps she um, is turning into the kind of adult that, um, treats the children on the island so poorly and at a certain point has to kind of make a decision about what kind of a person she wants to grow into. Um, Louisa and Andrew are about 12 and they, um, you know, they're kids, but they're kids with an eye towards um, the world that lies ahead in, ter in terms of um, the kinds of responsibilities that they might be asked to take on in the future, but they still have access to a kind of children's imagination, um, a children's sense of joy. And Louisa is really um, the main character in the novel, and she's kind of the leader of the children. Um, she is moved quite often by anger and frustration. Um, she is not, she has really poor eyesight. And one of the things that happens to her within the novel is that um, a broken pair of glasses washes on shore. And they help her with her vision, but because of the rules of the island, because all the garbage has to be fed to the pigs, she eventually has to feed the glasses to the pigs. And so she's sort of more, maybe more aware than the rest of the children of the kind of cost of the life that they have been forced to live. Um, and Andrew, he just, you know, he's the only boy who really wants a father. Um, yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So Andrew finds a, a man who was washed up on the island. Can you talk about his story? That's right. Yeah. So I think of um, Otis, the castaway, who Andrew finds as a kind of co-star with the children, right? So there's the children's story that's going on, and then there's the story of Otis, um, who's a man um, 
in middle age or maybe moving a little bit towards the end of middle age who is just kind of has like messed up his life. He's got this wife at home and he's got a small, a young son at home who he just loves desperately. Um, but he's just one of those people who just always has to be on the move. He always has to be leaving. And so part of what he's dealing with on the island is kind of realizing that he's arrived at a place that he has in some ways chosen, right? He's chosen to leave home, but he's at a point in his life where he realizes he can't return. And so that kind of um, sense of what happens when the choices we've made come to bear. Um, and it's very hard for him to accept. And one of the ways that he deals with it is by um, stepping up and trying to care for the children. And he tells the story of his shipwreck. Um, why was he the only survivor in and what's the symbolism of his story? Well, one of the things that I was playing with with Otis um, was thinking about him as a kind of Odysseus character. And so that's part of where his name comes from. And I was thinking about um, that, you know, like inverting that story of Odysseus, where Odysseus is just trying to find home, just trying to return home. And he eventually gets there, whereas Otis is always leaving home and when he realizes he wants to go home, it's too late. And so one of the things that happens um, with the shipwreck is, is a kind of reenactment of some of the shipwrecks that um, Odysseus himself encounters. Um, and so some of the stories that um, Otis incorporates into his life are stories that come from the Odyssey, right? The weaving of and um, ripping apart of the shroud. Um, even the island that he lands on, right? I was thinking about um, the island of the novel. Um, so Circe's island is, you know, an island where she turns the sailors in the Odyssey, from the Odyssey um, into pigs. And here we have this island that's populated with this herd of giant pigs. And like, is there some way of placing this kind of um, contemporary island of disaster into a narrative that has been going on for a thousand years or for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Except the part about home. Right. Yeah. So there's what is home? What is home for any of the people on this island? There's another character we haven't discussed yet. What about Eddie? What's his story? Right. So Eddie um, is, is the character that really sets the story of the novel in motion. So um, the first in the first chapter of the novel, we find out um, the rules of the island that it's a receptacle for the entire world's trash. That there are these four children on the island whose task it is to feed the garbage to a herd of giant magical pigs. And one day, a barrel washes up on shore, and the children pry it open. And instead of finding the regular garbage, what they find is another little boy um, named Eddie. And they can't decide if he's just more garbage and whether they should feed him to the pigs or whether he's one of them. And it's in the way that they respond to that decision that the story of the novel gets going. So uh, there's, there's a certain amount of good and evil, even in the children as well. Do you consider children to be capable of discerning between good and evil? Um, you know, I, I mean, I think that, sure. I think that we as human beings are creatures that are driven by morality um, and I think that one of the things that um, is quite different, like, okay, so we have the children and we have the pigs and the pigs um, are creatures that operate outside of a moral system. And 
even when they bite off the fingers of the children, which happens um, at certain points within the novel, they're not doing it out of any kind of um, uh, sense of evil, right? They're just doing it because they're hungry. Um, whereas with the children, the children take um, really morally questionable action, particularly against Eddie. And there's no way for me to understand what they're doing as decisions made without a sense of right or wrong. Um, like they're decisions that are made out of a sense of desperation and a sense of need, but they certainly know that they are um, morally questionable decisions. And then Andrew asks about this his childhood at some point. How, do these children know that theirs is not typical, that our children who have a different kind of life? You know, I think that they really realize that when Eddie arrives and Eddie starts telling them stories about what his life was like before the island, which he, unlike them, can remember with a great deal of clarity. And I think it's that moment that they realize, like, oh, this is not the way that life has to be and that some children are more fortunate than others. And part of the way that they respond to Eddie is out of a sense of um, anger that, in fact, his childhood has been so much easier than theirs. And he is a twin. He looks exactly like one of the children. What are we to make of that? Right. So he and Louisa look exactly alike, which, of course, is impossible since he's a boy and she's a girl. Um, so right away, what I wanted to do with that was have this kind of like mirror recognition, like we are so similar, but your life has been so different than mine. And what are the chances, like what is it in the chance circumstances of life that creates such inequality? Um, and what do we owe to other people through a sense of family connection? Like if we can see that we are essentially mirrors of each other, does that increase the kind of debt that we owe to that other person or the responsibility that we have for another person if we can see ourselves inside of them? Um, so that, that was a big question that I wanted to explore within the novel. Wow. And that ties into the whole question of immigration and how much uh, pushback there is now because, because immigrants aren't people who look the same, right? So that, that's a really interesting connection. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, all throughout the novel is this sense of, like, why, why is it that we can enfold some into a world and reject others from a world? Like, what, what, what is it that, that causes us to make the choices that we make? And how can we understand those choices as moral choices? Mm -hmm. At some point... Otis realizes he's filthy and he wants to wash off in the water. The kids warn him that it's too dangerous, but he jumps in and he's swimming. And then it, then he realizes they were right and he can't stop itching. So I, I understood that to be a comment on pollution in our oceans. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like the, and like, it's, you know, like a plastic fork washes up. I actually, that was one of my favorite scenes to write, particularly because um, when I was writing, it was when the news came out that min that um, Monopoly games were getting rid of like their old game pieces and replacing them with new ones. So one of the things that washes up and that like causes this kind of prickly sensation on his body is an old Monopoly game piece. And really I was just, I, yeah, I was thinking like, okay, what is it, 
Um, first of all, the ocean is very menacing. The things that make it menacing is the trash that's present inside of it. Um, and it's a mistake, right? It's a grave mistake for Otis to ignore all the um, garbage that's he's surrounded by within the water and also to ignore the warnings of the children who know very well what the consequences of swimming within that water are. And so um, part of what's happening with that scene is just like the ways that we just refuse to listen to any kind of expert information. <laughs> you know, we just, well, the water looks beautiful. I'm going in, but never mind that there are, um, you know, people who have studied the water, people who know quite a bit about it, people who could give you information if you just stopped and listened. And there are islands that do collect a huge amount of garbage that sweeps onto those islands. My daughter was just scuba diving and I forget where it was. Do you know, does that sound familiar? Yeah, well, yeah certainly. Like um, a friend of mine was just telling me how she um, travels to Kauai quite frequently and that always when she's walking on the beach that, on the beach, um, that trash washes up and in particular like plastic toothbrushes wash up all the time. Um, and I think that this is not an unusual thing for particularly islands in the Pacific um, to become kind of trash islands, right? Places where the world's garbage just washes on shore. And when I started writing, I kind of thought like, okay, this is kind of metaphorical. I'm thinking about, you know, the Great Pacific, uh, the giant Pacific garbage patch. Um, but there are actually islands that are just covered with garbage. So if somebody could take a copy of your book, a bunch of copies of your book, and give it to everybody in the government right now, what would you like them, what would you like the message to be? What do you want them to do? Oh, man. Fun, huh? Fun question. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a gigantic question. I guess I would like them to, um, you know, think very carefully about what it is that makes our world worth living in and what it is that we're destroying about the world on a daily basis, right? So um, what is it about our environment that we need to protect? What is it about the world's people that we need to protect? Like, why are we just throwing everything away? You know, there's so much more to talk about in this book, but um, we don't want to give it all away. So... Let, my last question is going to be, what are you working on now? Um, that, that's a hard question. So I, th so the easy answer is that I'm working on another novel. Um, it is rooted in fairy tales. It does not take place on an island. I've been thinking very carefully about forests and whatever it is, like however the novel ends up working itself out, it will be very closely tied to forests. So it will have an environmental aspect to it as well as a fairy tale aspect. Mm. Um, but it will not focus on children. I want it to focus primarily on adults. Okay. It sounds interesting. I'm intrigued. Thank you so much for joining me today, Joanna. It was so interesting. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and for asking such great questions. It was such a pleasure talking with you. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host of New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Johanna Stoberach, author of Pigs, 
If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash NBN forward slash join. Thank you.